As always, it's great to see everyone here. Always want to acknowledge our Lord for giving us the freedom and the opportunity to be able to, to come together like this in where many countries, they don't have this privilege and, and, out of, and availability. Um, but I would hand it to some of those other countries as well that they are, their fervor for Christ is, is in many ways much more than what we see in our country. But let us be grateful for the fact that we have the opportunity to gather. Yes, we will be diving into Philippians uh, today, those verses, those particular verses that Ivan had already read to you. But I would like to say this. If you could take all of the book of Philippians, you could boil it down into one verse. That would be Philippians 1, 21, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To capture the essence of what we'll, be, what we'll be discussing this morning, author and pastor and evangelical leader J.C. Ryle writes concerning one specific martyr during the Reformation who was named John Rogers. It was during the last four years of Queen Mary's reign, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, from the years of 1555 to 1558. It is a broad fact that during the last four years of Queen Mary's reign, no less than 288 persons were burnt at the stake for their adhesion to the Protestant faith. Out of these 288 sufferers, be it remembered, one was an archbishop, four were bishops, 21 were clergymen, 55 were women, and four were children. It is a broad fact that these 288 sufferers were not put to death for any offense against property or person. They were not rebels against the queen's authority or caught red-handed in arms. They were not thieves, nor murderers, nor drunkards, or unbelievers, or men and women of immoral lives. On the contrary, they were, with barely an exception, some of the most holiest, purest, and best Christians in England, and several of them the most learned men of their day. Ryle, in his brief description of the martyrdom of John Rogers, writes this. He says, on Monday, February 4th, 1555, an immense crowd lined the streets and filled every available spot in Smithfield, England. On that faithful morning of his martyrdom, John Rogers was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to even dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church where he preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. Ryle says that Rogers was a man who in one respect had done more for the cause of the Protestant Reformation than any of his fellow sufferers after. In saying this, I refer to the fact that he had assisted Tyndale and Coverdale in bringing out a most important version of the English Bible, a version commonly known as the Matthews Bible. Indeed, he was condemned as Rogers alias Matthew. This circumstance, in all human probability, made him a marked man. 
and was one cause why he was the first who was brought to the stake. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that Christians would actually give their bodies to be burned for their faith. When they saw Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one being a baby, whom Bishop Bonner in his diabolic cruelty had flatly refused him to leave to see in prison. He just saw them. He was hardly allowed to stop and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. Even the French ambassador, who wrote a description of the scene, had said that Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his own wedding. By God's great mercy, he died with comparative ease. And so the first Marian martyr passed away. John Rogers knew what it was like to live for Christ and to die is gain. John Rogers knew what it was like to live what I have titled this morning, The Dangerous Life. In essence, this is what Paul is saying in Philippians 1.21, where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Emphasized Bible, it reads this way, For unto me living is Christ, and dying gain. The original Greek translates it this way, for me to live and die Christ. It's what Paul is referring to in verse 6 when he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry writes, the Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to him. He is the principle, the rule, and end of it. All those to whom to live is Christ, to them to die will be gain. It is a great gain, a present gain, an everlasting gain. Many take this verse as a martyr verse alone, and only its place is to be found in our death. But Paul says here, under the power of God, he says to live is Christ, showing that living is as glorious as dying as long as we are abiding in Christ. Ken Myers, an astute Christian observer of popular culture, writes, he says, I believe that the challenge of living with popular culture may well be as serious for modern Christians as persecution and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. Enemies that come loudly and visibly are usually much easier to fight than those that are undetectable. John Piper states, Today the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon said the one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. 
Jonathan Edwards asked the question in his day. He said, why so little success in the gospel? How few thorough conversions to be observed? How scarce and how seldom? Spurgeon lamented the same thing in his day when he said, the state of religion in our country is low. I do not think I ever preached with less saving results since I was a minister. And this is the case with most others. It is a general complaint. And we can certainly lament, can't we, with both of these men. And we must ask ourselves the question in our day, why so little success of the gospel in our day? We can't be so blind and cold and indifferent and callous, can we? To the point where we don't even recognize the reality of the church in this country. Even the godly churches, the biblical churches, there are problems that we are not dealing with as the body of Christ. We need to obey the Lord. We need to come to the terms of true biblical repentance. Because in American Christianity, in this world, it's easy to become spoiled, rotten. Finding ourselves throwing tantrums at the most minute things. The problem is we're idle. What do idle children do? They bicker and they fight. When the real work of the church is what? Being a light to the nations. Being a light to your home. Being a light to your spouses. Being a light to your children. This is the call of God. And I think sometimes we think we have a better way of doing things. We fall into this humanizing, humanism, mechanical mindset that somehow we think we can do it better. Of course, we would never say that, but a lot of our lives and the lives of the Christians in this country prove to be that example. Many can die for Christ, but how many really understand what it means to actually, I mean, seriously, how many of us really understand what it actually means to live for Christ? That's a question I have to ponder and ask myself every single day, brothers and sisters. This isn't something I've mastered. Just because I'm up behind this pulpit doesn't mean I've mastered that particular reality in my life. It's a reality every single moment. If I'm not careful, I'm vulnerable to slip out of it really quick. This message, this particular message is for me. Jeff, yeah, you can go give your body to be burned, but without love, what is it? It's nothing. It's just an act of self-righteousness, right? But what does it mean to actually live? It's harder to live for Christ. It's harder, especially in a nation bombarded with every type of corruption, perversion, you name it, it's here. The hard thing now is to live for Christ, to abide in Christ. When all these things are going on, you're going to truly shine in this particular darkness, even though it may look like light. In Colossians 3, 4, Paul said, when Christ, listen now, who is what? Our life. The original language just says, who is our total life appears, then you also will appear with him 
in glory. Jesus Christ must be our whole life. We're not called to live our best life now. We're called to live the crucified life now. You see, the word faith people don't like the book of Philippians, do they? Doesn't sit well. It's like a bad pill. The book of Philippians is actually a prison epistle, a letter written by Paul while he was in prison. Paul wrote it about 62 AD, and he anticipated his release from prison. It was written to show his appreciation and love to the Philippians in a thank you letter for they continued for the continued help and support that they sent him and also to encourage their growth. Paul expressed his deep gratitude for their giving, but as we will see, that there's much more to be accomplished. You see, Paul had the right theology. He had the right theology. I hear people say, it doesn't matter about theology, it only matters about Jesus, right? The reality is without theology, we don't have Christ. Because our theological view defines the Christ that we so know and love. He knew the prescription that was needed was not comfort and compromise, but his deliverance would be supplied by what? By the Holy Spirit and by prayer. And this is why he says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation, hear me now, and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, hear me now, by life or by death. The whole capitalization of the Christian life is encapsulated in Christ. Everything in our existence is bound in Christ. Our living and our dying Christ. It's all together as one. Paul explains there are two things granted by God for a believer. The first one is to believe him, and the other is to suffer. He says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. As Jesus had said in Luke 14.25, that as believers in Christ, we need to count the cost, don't we? We need to count the cost. How many of us have Making certain certain decisions out of the flesh, right? Or in a hurry. And then later regret the very thing that has come to pass. We have to weigh every decision, every word that comes out of our mouth, everything that we do. So we're honoring, honoring Christ, not just by what we do and everybody else can see, but the way that we think, the way that we live, and the way that we speak, and the way that we act. All fall into this all the perimeters of, of Christ. Paul teaches both that both believing and suffering were parts of a faithful Christian living. His readers had likely had faced some persecution and may have wondered why they had to suffer if they were faithfully living for God. Paul makes it clear that godliness and suffering often 
go together. Brothers and sisters, living for Christ is a dangerous job. The dangerous life defines itself in three critical areas of the believer's life. And I'd like to deal with those this morning. The dangerous life defines itself in three critical areas of the believer's life. The first area being a dangerous life is defined by dangerous doctrines. A dangerous life is defined by dangerous doctrines. Not dangerous in the sense of being false or heretical, but dangerous because it calls for a bold stance for truth in times of great compromise. Paul wasn't sitting in prison because of some apparent heinous crime. He was in there for what? Preaching the true gospel. He wasn't preaching a false gospel of works either, but a gospel that rested solely in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And let me tell you, dear friends, that will get you into trouble. He wasn't like those that he warns about in Galatians 6.12 where he says, it is those who want to make a good show in the flesh. They want to show off, right? Who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So you can easily slide around, you know, persecution. Now all these things, if you just surrender and fall prey to a false gospel. You will get the literal applause of millions if you can formulate a false gospel that appeals to the works of men. The biggest heresy in our age isn't just sloppy, easy believism, sloppy grace. It's legalism is what it is. People think just by going to church or saying a few words or a yes and an amen to that, or who has the best sounding voice on Sunday morning. These are all qualifications that they're Christians. Well, you ask somebody, most people today, especially in Texas, you ask them, you ask them, are you a Christian? And they'll say, yeah, oh, how so? Because I go to church or because my parents were Christians or blah, 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 right? We hear it all the time. But why are you a Christian really makes all the difference in the world in this life and the life to follow. On one hand, the Philippians is a letter of friendship and thanksgiving. Paul's dear friends had sent him a gift and he wanted to thank them appropriately and update them on his circumstances. But on the other hand, everything for Paul was theological. And so even a thank you note or a an update provided an opportunity to help his friends view life more from the perspective of Jesus and the gospel. The term theology is derived from the Latin theologia, which means study or understanding of God or gods with an S, which itself is derived from the Greek word theos, which is, means God and from Logos, which means reason. Theology 
is important. Don't ever fall prey to a lot of those things, little sayings that go on out there. We don't need doctrine. We don't need theology. We just need Jesus. Of course we need Christ. Of course he is the, the, the only one that saves, the only one that sanctifies. He is the one that is in control. He is our King and Lord, Redeemer and Sovereign Ruler of all things. But the reality is we must understand our theological view is ultimately at the end of, end of the day is what's defined the God that we so love and we worship. As with many of his hearers, Paul warned the new believers in the church of Philippi to beware of the tendency towards legalism, which continually cropped up in the early church. So tied to the Old Testament law were the Jews that there was a constant effort of the part of the Judaizers to return to the teaching of salvation by works. But Paul reiterated that salvation is by faith alone in Christ and branded the Judaizers as dogs and men who do evil. Therefore, one of the major themes of Philippians is living a gospel, a gospel, a true gospel-centered life, so that all your circumstances and relationships are viewed through the lens of what's best for the gospel. See, living for Christ is really determined by not only the fact that you've been saved by the gospel, but the fact that you are kept by the gospel and that our marriages are gospel-powered. Our friendships and relationships and our community here originate from the gospel's power. When we go to the workplace and we're late for work, brings a reproach upon Christ. We can't submit to others and rebellion, we're rebellious against those in authority is another act of complete and total defiance. We need a gospel-powered, centered, and powered life. We have to ask ourselves, how in the world is this accomplished, right? It's accomplished by faith in Christ, by believing upon Him, and what else? Believing His Word. Not only believing His Word, but being in His Word. It's one thing to have met God, but it's, an, it's another thing to know God. Amen. Right? We can all say, well, I met God so-and-so in 1977. I was on the beach, and he came to me, saved me. But the interesting thing is, do you know him? Do you have a present knowing of God? And I don't say this to sound self-righteous or legalistic. I'm saying this, that, we need to come back. Sometimes we have to come back to the beginning, right? Sometimes you have to go back to the very day, if you could have a day, or the time when you know you knew that you were truly Christ. Sometimes we need to remember that day of when we were saved and why we were saved and how we were saved. This brings a humility to us saying, so what gives you any entitlement for anything? Why do you feel so entitled to do this or say that or be like this? Well, uh, you know, we have all kinds of excuses and justifications why we have a right to feel the way that we do. The Bible says we're not entitled to anything. 
right? One thing we're entitled to is hell. That's what you're entitled to. Your sin, right, has sold you to that reality. That's what we're entitled to. But because of God's sovereign grace, he saved us, not because there's anything good in ourselves. He didn't look at you and say, wow, you're such a great singer. You'd be a great singer for me. Let me save you. No, he's not a talent-driven God. He's not. He's a God who saves based upon his own mercy and his own grace and for his own glory. He saves us for himself, not for ourselves. And that's important to remember because you know what? When you remember that, you think of, wow, such were some of us. <gasps> such is me. Before you start pointing a finger at everybody else, stop for just a moment. If you can, you have enough self-control. <laughs> and examine yourself and ask yourself, am I the same way? Am I the same way? Am I criticizing and judging other people when my, I'm just like they are? Why? Because Christ saved us when we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. I know we hear this. It becomes cliche, right? But I pray it never comes cliche. I pray we never get used to hearing the gospel. You start getting bored with the gospel. There are some big problems in your life, yeah. period. The gospel should not only amaze us, it should astonish us. And I pray that for myself as well. I need to be more astonished as well. And I need to live in such a way. Paul also exhorted the Philippians to follow his example and be encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Paul had explained that his situation, which looked like a negative, was actually a positive situation, which actually, unbeknownst, furthered God's work throughout the prison. See, just before you complain, when something happens to you, listen, we don't want to minimize anybody's pain or anybody's tragedy or whatever anybody's going through. But listen, we have to recalibrate our thinking to the Bible. We have to have an understanding of who God is. We need to have correct theology or you'll go right to the dump site in your mind. If we don't truly believe that God is sovereign over all things and that he can do whatever he pleases, we're going to have problems in our Christian life. We're going to see things happen to us and we're going to be dismayed. The Bible says, don't be dismayed when these things come upon us. The reason why they're not dismayed because their theology was correct. They knew that God was sovereign. They knew that God ordained everything that come to pass. And they could understand that this suffering, as horrible as it is, came from the very hand of God. People can deal with things that way much more than just always blaming the devil. Now, I know the devil gets involved in those things. And I know the devil does harass the saints of God. The Bible does tell us that. But at the end of the day, he's God's devil. He's not on equal terms with God. God allows him to thrash us, to tempt us, to stretch us, to persecute us, right? To put us in the fire. Only for the 
reality of what will become in Christ. It's about God's glory and not our own. And I'll tell you something right now. People watch how you suffer. You don't think so? People listen to you. Lost people listen to you bellyache just like the world. They hear you complain about the same things that they complain about. The same old things. And they don't see any other comparison of what a Christian should look like. Not that we shouldn't bear one another's burdens. I get this for the church. But in reality, we got to communicate with the world. we got to deal with them in a way that's godly, in a way that's respectful. But listen, if we're falling into the same category when we're hit with pain or adversity or someone says something we don't like, and we're behaving just exactly like the world does, there is a problem. There is an issue that doesn't just command, it demands repentance. If you're going to see a change in your life in a way, you're stumbling through these patterns over and over and over again. It's not a thorn in your flesh. It may need biblical repentance. Does God give us thorns in our flesh? He most certainly does. But if it's an attitude issue, if it's an attitudinal sin, I wouldn't throw that into the thorn of flesh category. I would throw that word into the biblical repentance category. Paul's imprisonment also encourages brethren to wax stronger because of his chains. Not to lose heart, but instead to be ready to stand for truth and be ready to suffer for it. You see, Paul's, Paul's connections and those that knew him, those that were preaching and, 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 and going strong in the faith, were not discouraged by his chains. Where many of us would say, wow, he's in prison. I can't believe he got thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. How awful. Well, what about how great? Let's celebrate our brother who was thrown into prison. Because God's given him an opportunity maybe to preach to those who have never heard the gospel before. If we're God-minded instead of self-minded, we will see things in that perspective and we will learn to rejoice together in sufferings. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You'll never suffer for compromising the gospel, but you may suffer for preaching it truthfully. Vody Bauckham says, Suffering is common for us all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. We must, in this life, live as Christ, and to die is gain. The second point, a dangerous life is defined by having dangerous friends. A dangerous life is defined by having dangerous friends. You guys have any dangerous friends? Yeah. That's right. Paul had others like himself doing what he called the work of an evangelist. Those who are like-minded. You see, we understand something. When we, 
realize that we are safe in Christ, we will have boldness. It's the worry of death and dying and insults, right? No one likes to be insulted. No one likes to be unpopular. Everybody wants to be liked and loved. Look at the social media empire, right? It's, it, they knew something. They're, they know humanity sometimes better than we do. They get it. They studied it. They know how people function. They know they like to be liked and valued and appreciated for what they do, no matter what it is. And people fall into that. The human experience gravitates to wanting to be valued, wanting to be accepted. But these things must be seen in the light of the local church and the body of Christ because all of those things are satisfied. Philippians 1.14, um, when Paul reiterates this waxing confident, he understood very simply that his friends are becoming more dangerous in the respect that through his bonds, through his suffering, through even bad preaching that was even designed to add to his change, to add to his sufferings, he rejoiced because he knew that the gospel was being preached, whether in pretense, right, or in truthfulness. He knew that there was some scriptural truth going out into the atmosphere. And this he rejoiced in. And we should rejoice as well. Acts 5, 40 and 41 says this, And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and had beaten them, talking about the apostles for preaching the word, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Just want to consider that this morning as we, as brothers and sisters here at 116, continue to, continue to pursue Christ in, in our country, that we would operate in such a fashion that we would rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. John Gill states, the church of Philippi, having heard of the apostles' troubles, he was very desirous that they should have a true and right understanding of them, that they might be animated and encouraged hereby to endure with patience and cheerfulness whatsoever afflictions might befall them for the sake of Christ, holding forth the word of life in the midst of a perverse and crooked nation among whom ye should shine as lights in the world. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was a burning and he was a bright light. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.14 that we, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. See, lights only shine in the dark. It's dark places where we must be willingly and boldly go into. We need to shine the light in dark places, not condemn those who do that. In our day and age, there just seems to be a lot of feisty behavior over 
true biblical Christianity in this country, and that includes evangelism, yeah. preaching the word to the lost, right? Talking to your neighbors about Christ. Meeting that friend across the road you meet in the garage with. Talking to him about the truth of the gospel. And a lot of the times you'll find not necessarily a danger of your life, but there's always a danger of losing that friendship, right? But we got to be willing to go into the dark places of this world. Third point, a dangerous life is defined by dangerous preaching. I do like what the psalmist said in 119.63 pertaining to having dangerous friends or godly friends. He says, I'm a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep your law. You just see the gravitation of holy friendships, right? I gravitate towards men who love Christ. I just do because I'm born again as well. And I gravitate to those who are essentially men who love Christ, live for Christ, and want to proclaim Christ throughout the world. A dangerous life is defined by dangerous preaching. Much of the preaching that goes on today is not dangerous, but it's completely safe. It's safe. They want to remain safe. They want to leave the cross out of it. They don't talk about the blood of Christ. They don't talk about the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God. Hell, damnation, you don't hear any of these things much anymore because they don't please people. They don't fill the tithe box. They don't keep the churches full. We don't want to accommodate that type of behavior just for the sake of counting noses. Remember, Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel of Christ. He also says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14.8, he says, For if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? No one. There's your answer right there. An uncertain sound isn't going to prepare anybody for battle, but it's going to lull them to sleep. With amusement, right? Acts 20, 27. Paul said, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole will of God. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 16, he says this, just remember. Boy says, I'm sorry. He says, have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth. Just remember the prophets were confrontational preachers. John the Baptist was dangerous so much so that they had to take his head off to get him to stop preaching. Paul stood on Mars Hill. He went to the synagogues. He stood in front of the Sanhedrin. He was fearless. Christ himself never shrunk back. His preaching was like scud missiles knocking out every foolish argument from the Pharisees. It was said that Martin Luther walked a half a mile from his home to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October in 1517, and he was angry. 
He was about to nail a list of challenges, or as they had become to known as the 95 Theses, against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church to the door, which serves as the bulletin board in a very small town. Martin Luther nailed this death warrant to the cathedral door in Wittenberg, and within two weeks, copies of these had spread throughout Germany. Within two months, they had spread throughout Europe. In other words, in our language today, it went viral. <laughs> and it was because of the Gutenberg press. Beautiful. When asked with a stern question to recant his views, Luther replied, he says this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. Since it is neither safe, neither safe, nor right to go against conscience, here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Amen. Theology matters. This was brought the Reformation. It was a return to the unadulterated word of God. Theology matters. Doctrine matters. It's a it was, oh, you said, well, it wasn't dangerous. Have not you read church history? Have not you read how much blood was spilled for that stand? Time doesn't give me, I don't have the time to go in to all of the heroes of the faith that stood up and who lost families, whose families, kids were torn to pieces, thrown to wild animals. Husbands shot right in front of their families. Dads dropping dead right in front of their children. Brutal. That was during the times of the Covenanters, but it's interesting. Covenanters got tired of it. And, the, and history says they took up arms. And they began to understand Romans 13 and self-defense. They began to defend their families and eventually all of the UK became a Protestant country. You see, our Lord, King and Savior was the most dangerous man to ever grace this world. There is no man more dangerous than Jesus Christ. He is not a tame lion. He's not a safe lion. He's ferocious. And as his people, the Bible says, for the righteous are as bold as what? A lion. The lion. Jesus lived a dangerous life. He was a danger to the Pharisees, a danger to the Sanhedrin, a danger to the king, a danger to the pompous and the proud, a danger to Satan, and a danger to all those who have not repented and believed the gospel. Is that any of you this morning? who have not come to Christ? Can you come? Are you willing to come? I'd ask this morning, if you don't know God, the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And I would appeal to your conscience this morning and deal with this subject and ask you, where do you stand? If you were Seriously, and I don't say this joking around because 150,000 people pass into eternity every 24 hours. 
86 per minute. Brothers and sisters, we're going to make up the bulk. God has a million ways to take you out. And most of you, most of you are not guaranteed a deathbed experience. It usually comes as a surprise. You're not guaranteed the next breath, the next second, the next minute, the next hour. Who are we to say I've got tomorrow and I'll believe? I would appeal to you this morning that you would understand that you're a, sin, you're a sinner by nature and by practice. You have totally offended a holy God. And the Bible says a point for man wants to die, then comes the judgment. After you take your last breath, it's over. You won't come back as a tree, frog, dog, or log. You'll be standing before the holy, fiery presence of God. What a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I would appeal to you out of love to repent of your sins. So I don't know what that means. That means you stop going your way. You turn around 180 and you look to God and go his way. In John 14, 6, the Bible, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Only way to God is through Christ. It's not through any other religion. It's not through doing good works. So you can rub Buddha's belly until you're blue in the face, but your sin still remains. You can waltz around the Mormon temple and all their mirrors and see eternity, but your sin still remains. You can go and do the five pillars of Islam perfectly. Your sin still remains. You can knock on doors until you're blue in the face like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Your sin still remains. Only in Christ can your sin be abolished. Amen. You must put your faith and trust in him. Believe upon the name, the only name that can save. All who believe upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Nothing. You don't have to come up here and do cartwheels. You don't have to come up here and get slain in the spirit or speak in tongues. Simply believe upon his name. The Bible says, repent and believe. Believe upon him. If you can, if you are willing I would call you to repentance this morning and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you are here and you are not secure with God, or let's put it this way, if you've created a God in your own image, a God that's just satisfied with your lifestyle, that demands nothing from your life, you are serving a false God. Yes. It's an imaginary God and you have an imaginary salvation. Trust in Christ who bore the full wrath of God in your place. The Bible says he was born of a virgin. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born under the law, the covenant of God. He satisfied God perfectly, covenantally, with his own works, with his own life in your place. But then he went to the cross, and he became us on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. It's called the righteous transaction of God. The justification of God is when God poured out his wrath for it pleased God to bruise his son. 
Jesus wasn't sweating in the garden great drops of blood because he was going to be persecuted and whipped. Trust me, throughout church history, a lot of the martyrs were whipped and chained and burned, and they pretty much did it, most of them, with a smile on their face. It wasn't this type of situation that was, was creating Jesus to sweat the way that he did. He sweat that way because he knew in a very few moments that he was going to take upon himself the total and full wrath of God upon himself in your place. And the Bible says he went down into the grave. He said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost went down into the grave. But the Bible says that he sanctified the grave. It was sanctified. And because he was God, yes, he was man. In his humanity, he could die. But because he was God, he reversed death and he rose from the grave. See, as sinners, we go down into the grave, right? And then we go down deeper if we're not of Christ. But for Christ, when he died, he died in our place, 100% God and 100% man. There when he stood up on the cross, he was the advocate. Completely 100% God, 100% man. Therefore, when he died and went into the grave, he abolished death, hell, and the grave, and he rose triumphantly, victoriously over death. And if you want to escape death, hell, and the grave, believe upon Jesus Christ. Remember, be bold, brothers and sisters. Preach those dangerous doctrines. Preach them. They're not dangerous in the sense of what we know them to be, but it is dangerous to those of the world that literally hate Christ. Remember, gravitate towards dangerous friends. Get around others who are on fire. We can rebuke and encourage each other in the faith. We need each other. This is why I'm so disappointed and brokenhearted and shattered in our day because of the utter disrespect of the local church in our day. Long are the days where the church was feared by the government and by the people. It's not feared anymore. It's laughed at. We're a bunch of jokesters and clowns and comedians. We need to get serious again about the local church. Dangerous preaching. Don't be afraid to speak up. Yes, it may cost you your life, may cost you your friends, may cost you your reputation, may cost you all your finances, may cost you everything. Be ready to be totally spent for the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that your name was honored and glorified. Be lifted up over this congregation today. Enable your people, Lord God, to hear, to see, and to act. And those that don't know you, Lord, bring them to faith. Bring them into the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.